0: Today on the Scott Radley Show podcast, we talk about Hamilton infrastructure. There's lots of debate going on at City Council about where our money should go. But there are so many needs, we don't have anywhere near enough money to do the stuff we need to do. How do we solve this problem? We're also going to chat about an unbelievable... Unbelievable story from Waterloo where a nurse who stole opioids to feed her own addiction and was fired when she was caught has actually had her job given back to her by an arbitrator and money in addition paid to her to deal with her emotional suffering because her addiction wasn't her fault. It was a disease and her employer didn't help her with that. Really? And finally, Bubba O'Neill and I will be arguing slash debating slash conversing about the Baseball Hall of Fame inductions and some other stuff. Did they get it right? I say no. He says yes. You can listen and sort it out.
1: Today on the Scott Radley Show on 900 CHML.
0: We are into the most exciting part of the year, that being City Hall Budget Talks. I guess it depends on your point of view. It is an important part of the year, though, let me tell you that. And in the past couple days... There have been a lot of discussions, a lot of points coming up about infrastructure. Now, we know, I don't think anyone disputes this, we know that we need millions of dollars of repairs to our roads. Drive around, you will see. That's not a secret to anyone. But where this gets challenging is we also need millions of dollars to be put into public buildings and millions of dollars for maintenance and millions of dollars for housing, for... Uh, assisted housing, and we have an arena that needs repairs, and we've got bridges that need work to be done, and we've got bike lanes that people want to get, and it goes on and on and on. All of this costs money. There is no shortage of needs, infrastructure needs. The problem is how in the world do we ever plan to pay for all of this? Well, let me bring on Ward 14 counselor, Terry Whitehead. Uh, Thanks for doing this today, Terry.
1: Oh, it's great to be with you, Scott, and your listeners.
0: And uh, by the way, it does sound funny to say Ward 14 Council, I don't know if you've gotten used to it yet.
1: Uh, I'm still adjusting to uh, it, right. this step every once in a while.
0: Uh, we are talking here, whenever we get into the infrastructure discussion in Hamilton, uh, the last number that I remember hearing was our deficit, was something like $3.2 billion. it may be up, it may be down, I'm not sure, but we're talking billions of dollars that in an ideal world would need to be spent to bring us up to full repair in this city we don't have anywhere near that kind of money.
1: No, uh, and uh, there's no way on the backs of property taxpayers uh, would you ever pay that down. Uh, and, you know, to be fair, the reality is is that whether you own a home or a car or whatever you own, there's always going to be a, a, a repair bill. There's always going to be a capital expense. Uh, so that's to be expected. The question is, what is the appropriate amount in the context of sustainability? Uh, to ensure that we're addressing those infrastructure deficits in a timely fashion.
0: Well, and yeah, and I did a little math today, and uh, you would be better at math than I am. This is the reason I went into journalism and radio because I couldn't <laughs> do math. But if we have roughly 550,000 people in the city of Hamilton, give or take, and we average about three people per household, that's 180,000 homes. And If you were going to do the $3.2 billion infrastructure deficit, that's about $18,000 per home we would have to charge in additional taxes. Nobody is going to do that. So there's no real path to covering these things. As you say, it's not like we can even say for a one-year thing, we're going to cause great pain to everybody and get this thing covered. There's no way we could ever do this.
1: No, and 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 uh, to be clear, if you look at uh, historically what has transpired in the context of uh, infrastructure deficits to in municipalities, especially older municipalities, is uh, the fact that uh, for a large degree, and that Federation of Canadian Municipalities—that's an organization that represents over ninety percent of the municipalities across this country—they uh, did, uh, I think it's called the, uh, there's a study out of uh, McGill University, and they they had uh, determined, for example, in Ontario, when you took a look at uh, what the infrastructure deficit in Ontario was, and, uh, and municipalities, and what they're contributing, uh, and you just took inflationary costs. We're getting a fraction of the dollars in our municipalities from the other levels of government that we received back in the early '80s. So uh, there's a huge gap. Uh, you know, as we know, uh, property taxes aren't progressive; right? they're static. Uh, it's not. Uh, 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 there's no ability to. Uh, come in with an eighteen and twenty percent tax increase to uh, address these issues. So the other level of the government, provincial and federal, have to be a partner in this solution.
0: No, absolutely. Not. And I mean, look for your own health and safety. If you were to try and put in an eighteen percent tax increase, people would be with pitchforks and torches down at the front door of city hall. And and the other part about this that becomes so challenging is that stuff does not naturally get better. There's a law, the second law of thermodynamics. Things get worse. They don't get better. So you can't suddenly say, well, you know, if we give it enough time, Cops and First Ontario Centre will repair itself. It's always going the other way. There's always more costs added rather than the other way around.
1: Yeah. And let me say an example uh, in recent history, when the province of Ontario uh, decided to uh, download all their housing stock onto municipalities. So we take over the housing, right? but they didn't pass on the, the dollars on these tired old buildings in regards to capital to fix them. So here's a yet another example where municipalities who are uh, ill-equipped to, uh, to address these significant capital influx uh, and burdens are, are happy to try and address. So the province uh, and the federal government, they're downloading onto municipalities, but we don't have the tools. Uh, again, the property tax, you can't increase it so much. You've got affordability issues. You're not going to force people out of their houses. And yet, let's be clear to all your listeners, when you take a look again back in a, in a study, if I recall, uh, we're only getting like two cents on the dollar in, in, in the context of what we contribute. So in Hamilton, for example, and again, there's another study, $2.8 billion in taxes is what we produce rather than the government. We're only getting four or five cents on the dollar in, in, in return and services in the municipality. So there's a huge inequity in, amount, in, in regards to how much money is coming back to our communities. You're listening to the Scott Radley show podcast on 900 CHML.
0: We're talking about infrastructure problems in the city. And just before the break, Terry, you were mentioning how about the downloading of stuff to the city that, that we don't get that much money or that many tools from the federal and provincial government. But is it not at this point, almost a pipe dream to think that they're going to turn around and suddenly give more? It seems like that ship has almost sailed and waiting for a higher level of government to... Sign a check to help the cities out is is long gone.
1: Uh, actually, um, incrementally, it's happening. So, the Federation came, K- municipalities lobbying of uh, a message across this country. Uh, one of the first breakthroughs was uh, getting some of the gas tax to come back into the communities to help with capital uh, expenditures. For example, in the city of Hamilton, uh, we are now receiving, I believe, uh, well, I can't remember the t- maybe thirty-two million from the federal gas tax. I think it's twenty-eight million. Actually, is being applied to our, uh, our roads and our road budget. So uh, there has been uh, some breakthrough. The problem is the gap is still there, and it needs to be closed.
0: the The situation is seems to be significant enough with the city with our deficit now of infrastructure that, even though there are some people who blanch at any suggestion that public buildings, public whatever, ever be sold. It does almost sound like we have to start looking down that road, does it not? That if there is something that the private sector wants to buy and maintain, we have to now at least consider it?
1: Well, I think there's two things, and it's it's probably a bit of a value statement here as well. I mean, what business should the city be in primarily, one, Uh, and two, if there's uh, interested private uh, 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 parties out there, investors out there that are prepared to optimize a, a city uh, asset that is not part of a core value or core uh, service then certainly we should be looking at those as the first places to generate uh, offsetting revenue to both through uh, uh, the dollars that you receive from uh, the sale but the optimization of those properties in regards to the tax that would be generated uh, down the road again to help facilitate the, uh, the dollars we need to uh, meet our capital needs.
0: Right, and so that's you phrased it better than I did. I'm obviously if there is something that is public that is making us tax dollars that we are in a net gain position from, we wouldn't want to unload those. But if it's anything that is costing us money, and there was a private industry or private person that was saying, "I'll take that on," it, whether or not we do or not, it seems as though we may almost be in the position where we have to at least give it some thought.
1: Uh, well, absolutely, but I want to make it clear that again, it depends on what role those facilities yes, are, yes. are providing to the city. So uh you know we, we wouldn't be selling off uh our, our recreation centers that provide a service to the broader community for example uh but having said that you're absolutely right but we do I'm already doing that i mean we i moved uh, I a motion a number of years ago to look at uh revenue generation for the city what can we generate money without continue going back to the taxpayer uh and uh, and that's where you get creative uh, that's where innovation comes in I mean we look at our surplus lands we've got lands that we're sitting on it. Could probably generate tax uh, uh, revenue for the city and and yet we're not optimizing so we need to do that assessment across and we are uh, and we have been selling uh, uh property where it makes sense uh land values are going up uh that means we can only generate more money and then you gain two things back to the uh optimizing of the, la- the land and the tax generation to create and jobs so that's one piece of the puzzle uh, but i want to go back to the fact that uh you know the debate that we had the reality is is that on roads for example only uh, twenty eight million of those dollars are gas tax nineteen million dollars is what is actually coming from the levy to roads now there's a ninety million dollar budget so I want you to understand that me understand there's a ninety million dollars budget for roads bridges the problem is is that a, a chunk of that money is development charges that's for new roads that's not tax levy but that's in that number we're only putting about $44 million to our roads. Currently, $28 million of that is the gas tax. $19 million is levied. All the other capital we currently generate from the tax levy is going to the facilities, it's going to housing, it's going to all those other issues. Are we putting enough to our roads is the question. And when I knock on doors, and I'm sure you experienced it, the minute you step up, get up in the morning, you go to the door, you're on our roads. Whether you're cycling or you're using our, our sidewalks walking or driving, you are using that infrastructure. It impacts everybody. It's something that people can identify with. And what you hear over and over and over again is that roads are bad shape. It depreciates the value on, 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 on houses as an undesirable place to live when you have a road that you need a four-wheel drive. It's creating uh, damage to vehicles, slips and falls, uh, and if you don't address it, um, you're going to have a problem. We have areas in the city, for example, that are still rural cross-section, yet they're in the urban centers. they got schools and churches with no sidewalks. There's, there's no curbing. There's still ditches. So we got a ways to go, and that's why there was a big push to consider. Uh, and this is what I heard at the, at, at the door. Look, I don't like paying higher taxes. But if I see where my money's going, like roads, then I can at least appreciate it. I don't see a lot of roads being built or resurfaced. That is the issue that we need to address.
0: Councillor Terry Whitehead, appreciate your time as always. Thanks for doing this.
1: Thank you for having me. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML. I'm
0: going to tell you a story that I think many of you are going to find hard to believe. Some of you have read this story, so you know I'm not making it up. It's not April 1st. I'm not playing some sort of ironic joke on you. This is a real thing. There was a nurse at a Waterloo nursing home who was a senior nurse, she was in charge of something like 50 patients. She was overseeing the, the department. For two years, according to the story, for two years, she stole... Now, her name has not been released, by the way, so we're not going to name her because we don't know her name. For two years, she stole pain medications, opioids, from the nursing home to feed an addiction that she had to those drugs. Sometimes she filled out fraudulent paperwork, made it look like the drugs were going to the patients but really kept it for herself. Other times, unbelievably, she held back pain medicine from the patients so she could keep some of the drugs for herself. So naturally, when she was found out, when she was caught, she was fired, as you would expect, right? I mean, everybody listening, I'm thinking, would say, of course, not only are you going to work possibly on drugs, you're stealing from the company, you're possibly hurting your patients that you're in charge of. Well, here's the thing. The Ontario Nurses Association grieved this on her behalf and an arbitrator has now ruled that her addiction must be treated as a disease that must then be accommodated by her employer. Therefore, she must be, because this was not really her fault, she was a victim here. She was a victim. She must be reinstated into her job and compensated for, quote, injury to her dignity, feelings, and self-respect. This is not a joke. Let me bring on John Pincus. He is an employment lawyer with Sanfira Tumarkin. Always love having John on. He's been on before. John, thanks for doing this today. My pleasure, as always. Please, please, please tell me that this is an incredibly rare and unusual situation, and this kind of thing doesn't happen very often.
2: Well, it it, it certainly does strike me as a little bit unusual. Um, I mean, one thing that needs to be kept in mind for for context is that this is, of course, a unionized environment. Mm -hmm. Um, Not every employee is going to be unionized. In fact, not every nurse even is going to be unionized. Um, So this is not necessarily the result that you would get um, if uh, one were not under the protections of a collective agreement. Um, I think what sounds like what would have guided the arbitrator in this case is that here you had someone who did uh, eventually uh, disclose, um, disclose that they had an addiction um, and followed a recovery plan, and there was quite a bit of cooperation uh, from the employee. Uh, from my perspective, I think what is surprising... Um, to me, or or what certainly would be surprising me if this happened in the non-unionized context, is the falsification uh, aspect of this. Um, And uh, I think that for for most, uh, in most cases, it's going to be very difficult to draw a link between a disability uh, and an addiction and sort of deliberate uh, falsification, but obviously here the uh, the nurse was, was able to, or the union, uh, rather, was able to do that.
0: Well, and beyond that, John, and, and look, your your points are fair. This story, though, seems beyond that even more unique, because we're not talking about someone who, as a result of an addiction stole chocolate bars or stole even something from some corner store. And really it was relatively speaking a victimless crime. You, this is a woman who was looking after elderly, probably vulnerable, frail patients. And in some cases, according to this report was withholding their medications from them. So it's not like there's no victim in this. And yet that's still not enough apparently for her to be gone.
2: Yeah. I mean, personally, I would have thought that, um, that the employer in this case, Sunnyside, would have been able to meet the threshold for what's called undue hardship. Uh, that, uh, this kind of, uh, addiction, uh, poses such a great risk, um, mm. to the operations and to the, the well-being of the people who are residents there. Um, that uh, that it was just not something that they could accommodate, but again i I think what it sounds like guided the arbitrator's ruling was that you had someone here um, who was cooperative um, and who did disclose it and in contrast you know we had a situation a couple years ago that eventually uh, it was from it wasn't in Ontario it was in another province but eventually went up to the Supreme Court. Where you had someone who did not disclose and said part of their addiction was that they couldn't admit it sure. uh, and that was held to be a step too far is it okay well if you're not even going to follow if there's a policy that says you have to disclose and you don't even disclose uh, that's not uh, okay but again I, I suspect what this decision was guided by was the cooperation from the employee and obviously the union was very effective in presenting that narrative that this was not someone who was trying to be underhanded but who was trying to cooperate and i don't know exactly how the timing of that worked out and yeah
0: after well it was clear that it was after she was after she was caught so it, she didn't go to them and say oh look i need help i i'm i'm really out of control here she was caught and then admitted it and it does we got to go to a break in a second but we're going to come back with this one because it does make me wonder how far we can go with an addiction defense within employment law so if i am a an alcoholic and I say I, I'm at work drunk and they say you can't do that and I say well look I, you know you can't fire me because it's out of my control or if I if I'm surfing porn on my computer and say I'm a sex addict we're gonna take a break and come back and say how far can you actually take the defense in employment law of an addiction being a disease therefore out of my control you're
1: listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on 900 CHML
0: John just before the break I was saying how far Can you take an addiction defense in a workplace? And we could all come up with a million different examples. Could I almost do anything in my workplace as long as I'm cooperative when I get caught and say, yeah, but it's my addiction. I couldn't be responsible for that.
2: Well, I think the first thing is that you're going to have to, in, in in many cases, provide medical support for that, right? So if you're claiming an addiction, and uh, you know, a lot of addictions are invisible, a lot of them are mental health issues, but there should should still be some health practitioner who can who can validate that. You most people uh, will, you know, as long as it's a it's a genuine addiction, of course, will will be able to meet that threshold. Uh, but that's not the end of the story. Uh, because the employer is still able to make an argument, uh, in appropriate cases, that it's undue hardship, and, and undue hardship can be as a result of uh, an unreasonably um, heavy costs that that puts the the business uh, uh, so substantial that it would that it would you know affect the viability of the business as a whole, or a health and safety requirement. This is where uh, I, I sort of have a, a bit of question with respect to to this decision. That's that's where I'm, I guess I'm a little bit surprised uh, that the union was able to overcome that and and, uh, again, I don't know exactly um, what what arguments were made here, if the Mm -hmm. undue hardship argument was made and and what was made in response, but um, looking at this from a a bird's eye view, um, I would think that the union would have had a major obstacle to overcome um, to, to Get over the, the, you know, the obvious argument that there's going to be substantial harm um, if this is allowed to continue.
0: Right. How do I, how, who is going to leave their mother or father or grandparent in a nursing home mm-hmm. where this woman is now looking after them knowing what her past has been? You'd be an idiot to do that.
2: Yeah, and I wouldn't even say that you you would need to go that far. I would think the employer could just say, "Look, it's it's a high probability of substantial harm. It's the risk is imminent. It's severe. This is what the tribunal uh, has outlined um, as being the the relevant uh, and and the courts have outlined as being the relevant principles to establishing." that, that this this is just too much, that this may be a real addiction, um, and this, this may require accommodation, um, but this is not the kind of environment that can provide, this is just not an appropriate workplace um, that, that can accommodate that. Every workplace is going to have their limits. Uh, but this case goes to show that that bar can be very, very high, mm-hmm. uh, just like the bar to establish cause is very, very high, uh, and employers need to be cautious about this.
0: Here's where I get really confused though, because the I believe it was the Ontario Nursing Association that made the case that uh, she's been reinstated and she's under strict conditions and she has to have random urine testing and all the rest to make sure. But here's where the confusing com- part comes in. If you can argue that she does it again, so if she does it again, she would then be fired. We're not going to tolerate this. But why would addiction be less of a disease then? Than it was now. So uh, if we're saying that, we're saying she can control her addiction. And if she can control her addiction, then she should have controlled it the first time. You understand what I'm saying? Like, it, it seems like we're, we're giving extra chances here and changing the definition of what her problem is, depending on the circumstances. If she's truly addicted, she would pr- potentially, theoretically, be able to do the same thing over and over and over again and say, I can't control myself.
2: Right, and that's that's again where, as the you know, if I was counsel to the employer, I would certainly be making that undue hardship argument very strongly. Um, I suppose the the argument here would be that if uh, if there is a further issue, um, and now we have this program in place, and we can't attribute it to her addiction, then we can only attribute it to uh, deliberate. Um, Deliberate misconduct, in which case we're in the the neighborhood of of just cause. Um, And if it is the addiction, then and we can't attribute it to that kind of deliberate misconduct, then again, if I were counsel to the employer here, I would certainly be inclined to be making that undue hardship argument Mm -hmm. to say, fine maybe she can't help it but this is not viable uh, we, we we just we can't allow this to happen regardless of whether it's her fault and and you know, we, we don't blame her for it but uh how can we put these people in in danger in, in danger this is just not uh there has to be a balance here and that's been recognized uh both by the tribunal and the courts and so i i think that uh the union um it was quite a feat by the union to, to overcome what it I'm sounds sure like was it. a very compelling uh, undue
0: hardship argument. John, just before I let you go, we got 30 seconds left here. Would we have seen, do you suspect, now you already say it's a bit of a surprise to you what happened, but do you expect that we might or could have seen the same result if one of her patients had died under her care?
2: I think that's a difficult to say. Um I, certainly, you know, from from the perspective of, of equities and how the narrative would have played out in front of the arbitrator, um, I, I suppose I could see that having a different result. But theoretically, um, you know, theoretically, the analysis would still lead to the, mm. the same place, uh, because it's not about the fact that it doesn't sound like it was the fact that there wasn't any harm caused. It was uh, the degree of cooperation yeah. by the uh, the nurse that that drove the decision.
0: It is a uh, it is a stunning story. I encourage people to go look it up. You can find the story online. Uh, John Pincus, employment lawyer from Some Fear to Mark, and really appreciate the time. As always, thanks for doing this.
1: My pleasure. You're listening to the Scott Radley Show podcast on
3: 900CHML.
0: Alright, let me bring in our buddy Bubba O'Neill from CHCH. Sir, how are you today?
3: Oh, I'm exhausted, Scott. I mean, that is the, why the Baseball Hall of Fame chooses to make this announcement, you know, where newscasts all around <laughs> North America are... You know, coming up at six o'clock, and you've got visuals to to put together and a script to write. And
0: well, they you want know. you to go live for the full hour, usurp all other news.
3: Well, it, 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 I, it made it, but man, that was that was you know, and, and I know I'm not the only one, right? It's just it's just a sure. what a scramble.
0: Uh, uh, let's talk about that. I was going to talk football. We're going to talk football, but since the Baseball Hall of Fame just happened, let me. Um, I think you and I last time you were on, we had our debate. I think it's shameful that Edgar Martinez gets in and Larry Walker doesn't. I don't even have a problem with Edgar Martinez necessarily getting in. But for him to finish 30% higher than Larry Walker, who has higher numbers across the board and seven gold gloves, to me is just plain wrong. But we've had that discussion already, so let's move on to the next one, unless you want to jump in on that
3: one. Well, I'm just I'm just saying I think uh, there's, a, there's a feeling, especially when you're on your final ballot, and, and I know that's the same for Larry, um and of course the you know you've got a puerto rican factor as well too you know what he you know what have you done for the game internationally and what he did for that country i mean along with rivera and roberto clemente edgar martinez is probably the most popular puerto rican you know player coming out of puerto rico and supported by that country what did
0: larry walker do for baseball in canada
3: Uh, i mean I, i i i'm gonna i'm gonna say he he certainly did a lot but i i'm gonna gamble again because of the size of the country and the fact that we're a hockey country here and they're a baseball country in puerto rico that edgar probably did a little bit more and i I say that respectfully but no and and i don't
0: i don't have a beef with edgar martinez getting into the hall of fame he was a terrific terrific hitter but for 30 percent more voters to say that he was a better player than larry walker to me is absolutely asinine it is because Edgar Martinez was a DH he did one thing he did it particularly well right. but Larry Walker had better offensive numbers and seven gold gloves how look even if you want to argue about who was who would be the guy you would want on your team 30% difference in balloting I, I makes don't think no you
3: sense i look at it way, scott i think you have to look at it in the sense that he was 70.4 last year right so i i, I know you want to make a direct comparison and and that's valid, I think, in some ways. But I think in some ways you have to look at it from where they were last year and where they were this year, as, as making that incremental move up in terms of the voters, uh, and going from seventy point four this year to what is it eighty five point four? You know, he was almost he was twenty votes short short of going in last year, so you knew he was going in
0: this year. So he had a good year last season to get him up that 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 mark. His his stats this year were really good. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and another one, and this one, I, I have a feeling I know where you're going to fall on this one. Right, uh, Ma- Mariano Rivera, terrific pitcher, one of the best pitchers, uh, certainly one of the best closers of all time. But to be the, the first best
3: closer of all time,
0: to be the first ever player to go in unanimously, right? A joke, a no, joke.
3: No, no, it's not, Scott. It, 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 what's a joke is what the the voting, the voting and how it was held in the previous years up until this year is the, what the joke is. But previously, voters did not have to put a name to their vote. That's true. Right? And people could hide and hold their grudges and not pick people. So that's why we never had a 100% vote. And that's the only reason why, because people could hide behind their vote. Now, as a responsible voter in the baseball you know, writers of association, you have to, your vote is now seen and it's accountable for. So now we finally got it right. And that's why you're going to see players with higher percentages now than they ever did. Because you can't have a bias like you used to. I did read, uh, I, I believe it was in a New Jersey uh, newspaper this morning, about a writer who said he didn't want to pick Mariano Rivera and was, mm-hmm. going, to for, and was going to forfeit his vote. He said, changed his mind, voted for Mariano, and... And, and completed his vote. Because he, he knew
0: that he would take such crap which from the, everybody because it's public. And look, I'm, I'm okay with the right. with the votes being made public now. I got no problem with that. But if you now have people who say, I would have right. voted or would have not voted for someone, but I know then that I'm just going to take a, a tsunami of... Social media crap, it's not worth it. Well, that's not a good reason to vote for the person either, but I get it. Well, like the, I get
3: the, it. We're in a majority rule situation, right? In, 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 a, in a sort of majority-speak sort of situation. So, you know what? Had it been the old way, Mariano wouldn't have gotten 100%. He would have definitely been in the high 90s, in my opinion. Yep. He's the greatest closer of not only his era, but I mean statistically, he's the greatest closer ever. Um, on top of that, too, he's you know, as you well know, I know you're you're deep in your baseball knowledge. He basically developed the pitch in that cutter.
0: That's true, right? and that and that buys him a lot. Look, I, I I read a terrific piece today on in Forbes magazine online, uh, which I don't agree with the headline, right. which was Mariano Rivera is the most overrated player of all time. However, they did bring up one really interesting point in here that did make me pause to think for a second, and that was in 2012, remember when he was shagging fly balls and he tore his ACL, yes. and everyone said, the Yankees are doomed, they used a bullpen by committee right. and blew exactly the same number of saves as Rivera did the year before and still won 95 games. And he goes, look, if you can put together a bunch of guys... That can go in there and do the exact same job. How good could this guy really be? I give him the credit, as you say, because he developed the cutter. He developed a pitch that other guys use now. But that other point that he made, I went, hmm, that is an interesting thing to well, ponder. It's, it's- because of his position he's a, he's a and ninth inning specialist
3: and it's not what we're seeing right now i mean i, I mean and again think people change right baseball and sports is, is is baseball's no different it's like every other sport it evolves and now we're seeing this sort of amalgamation of of, of closers right now and maybe not one specific you know guy that is the closer as we you know we had it whereas with the Yankees every single time that ninth inning rolled around Mariano Rivera was going into the game um And then before that, it was, as he was leading up into being that closer, every single time there was a situation that required protection of a lead or keeping the game at an even score, Rivera was in on the eighth, Wetland would come in in the ninth. And that was just the way the Yankees did it. But here's the clincher. Here's why I really believe... He gets the absolute admiration of all of the voters, Scott. And that is his performance in the postseason where the Yankees were going to the postseason a lot. So you're talking about five World Series and I think a, one year, um, they lost to the Diamondbacks, if I remember correctly, with Rivera on the mound at that too. His numbers are, like, are mind blowing. I mean, is ERA under, under one in the playoffs? That is, I mean, I don't know if he, he may be the only one,
0: really. Well, and, and you're absolutely right, but that uh, that does raise the other argument against him then, which will be the same argument that comes up when Derek Jeter is eligible for the Hall, and that is, is, so if Mariano Rivera had not been drafted by the Yankees and had been drafted by the Tampa Bay Rays mm-hmm. or by the Pittsburgh Pirates or San Diego Padres, although they had Hoffman, uh, would he be, would we be talking, because you're right, his postseason numbers are really what made him Exceptional, they really did. That that sets him apart from a lot of the other closers. If he doesn't have all those other postseason opportunities, right. does he go in? And here here's this this is a nice segue. I'm glad you brought that one up because this is the other argument about the Hall of Fame today, and that is Mike Mussina, a Yankee pitcher for a lot of his time as well as an Orioles pitcher, gets in. Kurt Schilling, who is a postseason legend. Mucina was terrible in the postseason more often than not. Kurt Schilling was great. Mucina has more regular season wins. Kurt Schilling has better ERA and whip. Schilling doesn't get close. Mucina gets in. I'm looking at this going, wait a second. So again, are we talking about, what are we talking about here?
3: I, I, I think with Mucina, and I know we talked about this last week, and, I, and, I, and I'll say this because I, I, I think it's it plays a major part. He pitched for 18 years. Averaged, I think, sixteen to seventeen wins every year. That's
0: really good. That is very good.
3: That's really good. And he has it a lifetime. Whereas Schilling, I think, is in the low two hundreds, like Roy Halliday. Mussina has two hundred and seventy wins. Yeah. And as we discussed moments ago, with the changing and the, the evolving of baseball and the changing of the starters' role, the Blue Jays had one had one complete game last year.
0: I know. I know, right? but, it. but but it, Bubba, don't the modern baseball people say wins are a completely useless and meaningless statistic?
3: I think for the modern day game, but I think when you're looking, when you're voting about past players, I think you, the old rules still apply. And 270 wins, Scott. I think i I I think I know. I'm just throwing this out here. I, I'll call it the hot take of the night but I don't know if anyone will ever win 270 games could be.
0: ever again. It could be, because of, because of the innings that you're you're kept at. And again, I go with Mussina the same way that I went with the Edgar Martinez position. Right. I don't have a beef with, with Mike Mussina going into the Hall of Fame, mm-hmm. but it makes no sense to me that the same voters, and this is the thing, if you just had a random number of voters who was allowed one player, right. so that there was no comparatives, but the same voters who said, yeah, Mike Mussina is a Hall of Famer, but Kurt Schilling isn't, that doesn't make any sense to me. That that's the, that's the part. If everybody got one vote and then you added up all the different ones so that, oh, I got to pick one or the other and I've got my preference. I get that. But the same guys who picked Messina could have picked Schilling, and I don't understand. I would, at their best, and for a long period of time, I would absolutely have taken Curt Schilling over Mike Messina. Absolutely. I, I
3: don't, you know, here, here yeah. It, it, it,
0: certainly arguable I didn't, I didn't right go, certainly I arguable I
3: didn't, I didn't want to go there i didn't want to go here but i'm going to go here kurt Schilling, and we've talked about this with barry bonds because barry bonds was a guy that was personality very gnarly, very gnarly with the media people had an edge against him there was some feeling that we're going to make him pay and maybe he's not going to get the votes that he should get kurt Schilling is a guy that has said some things over his time during retirement, and even during a, as a player, but more so out of baseball. Yes. And I know that shouldn't count, Scott, but human beings are human beings.
0: He's a controversial guy in his retirement, for sure. You know,
3: he's a guy that has said particular things against, against I believe it is against the uh, Democrats,
0: Oh yeah, no he, he is a, he is a staunch Republican and that, yeah. and has said and he's a staunch conservative and has said some things that have gotten a little some people fired up and antsy. Absolutely, he has. He's been and, and very I, controversial. I
3: wonder if that. I wonder. If, you know, we, we talk about you know you talk about why would choose one player over another. You know, we're human beings and we all have feelings and sometimes we hold grudges. Like I talked about with Bonds, and I almost wonder if he's paid the price for a little bit of that kind of stuff.
0: Perhaps, although, you know, in the States, and we'll leave it after this, we'll move on from baseball to football. In the States, I know that politics infuses and infects everything right now, but if you can't be a conservative or can't be a liberal, whichever side... After your career is over, and that determines whether you're a Hall of Famer, you got even bigger problems than we thought. Because this, I know what you're saying that you know it was Steve Carlton who would never talk to the media, and he paid the price for a while because people hated him.
3: And he was spectacular. He was a spectacular Of course he was.
0: But that happened in his career, and that was that was in a weird, sort of not really, but sort of kind of way connected to his career. Schilling. Nobody had a beef with Schilling that I know of throughout his entire baseball career. He talked to people. He pitched. It was after he retired that he became a guy who was willing to speak out on things. And to me, that's really now if that's and you may be completely right. I'm not going to dispute what you're saying, but that becomes really problematic if now your political position is getting people to vote against. You. All right, and I, go ahead. I totally
3: agree with you. I totally agree with you, but I I still think that, that could be. I still think those voters, are, those uh, voters are human beings, and sometimes people carry grudges.
0: Uh, let us just be thankful that the one guy who did get in with no argument was Roy Halliday.
3: Oh, absolutely. And
0: the only thing is, let us now hope because Roy Halliday is no longer with us, which opens the door for some funny business to go on. Let us hope that even though Philadelphia is in the states and closer to Cooperstown let us hope that the people who run baseball don't do something stupid and put him in with a Phillies cap on
3: is that not his would that not be the choice of his wife
0: well I... I'm not entirely sure because I thought that was always the way. And then there was one player recently. Was it Winfield who said he wanted to go in with the Yankees, and they put him in with the Padres or something? I can't remember. Uh, you
3: know what? No, I, 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 it was um, it
0: Carter. was somebody. Carter, was,
3: yeah, Carter, who wanted to go. You know, who wanted to go in as a member of the New York Mets, right? And uh, and they said, no, you're wearing an Expos cap. You're wearing an so Expos.
0: let us. Ho- I mean, he played way more years with the Blue Jays. He had a perfect game with the uh, Phillies, and he had that no hitter in the playoffs, and that may make some people say no he should be a philly uh yeah y- yeah you know it's in the grand scheme of things it's irrelevant but boy if you want to stick a pin in the eyeball of everybody north of the border that's how you would do it
3: yeah I, and i'll be honest with you i can i would be shocked if major league Me too. baseball allowed it allowed that to happen and you're right um th- he became, uh, unfortunately, and this is just Canadian media, especially at the time that he pitched. And I know we've got a lot of changes now with Twitter and social media and YouTube. But, you know, he basically pitched, for the most part, in a time where a lot of people did not know who he was. Yep. And uh, other than, like, yeah, the Jays got a real guy, you know, a real good guy. Out this, they're just w- Unless he came to a stadium which obviously you're not at every stadium because you pitch in one league for the most part, and a lot of his career was not interleague baseball. So only people in New York and Boston and Tampa really know about this guy. And it took, really, when he was a Blue Jay, till the day I believe it was Derek Jeter that said, this guy's the best pitcher in baseball. Right? He, Derek Jeter said that. And people started to awake. And then obviously there was, you know, the move to Philadelphia to get him to be with a winner. And he was outstanding and pitched, you know, I think six, five, six years with Boston, uh, Philadelphia. And with our four years, I think it was, and was just amazing.
0: All right. We are way short on time because we took too much time on baseball. That's OK. But I did want to talk about football briefly. Now, just to clarify, because there were two games on the weekend with two major issues. You and I both agree on the New Orleans no call thing, correct? Correct. There's, there's no question about that. Well, a terrible is, no call.
3: Horrible. The only thing I disagree with is, like, I guess, someone is trying to file a class action <laughs> lawsuit <laughs> yeah. to try and have the game picked up from where it was. So, and the Saints got robbed, right? Yeah. My, you know what, Scott? Quickly here, the thing that really upsets me, it, it's a, it was an opportunity for Roger Goodell as the probably the most well-known commissioner in sport, probably the most powerful, at least. To to step up and make a statement, and nothing has been heard from the NFL offices in New York. Well, and, and that's and that bothers me.
0: And you know, I had forgotten all about this, but what also is making folks in New Orleans lose their minds right now? And I had forgotten this. Remember the Bounty Gate back in 2011, where Roger Goodell was accused of being way too hard on the Saints and suspending their coach and coaching staff for a oh, year yeah, for, uh, for
3: Greg and, Williams. For, yeah, uh, Hunter, yeah.
0: And boy, now now you have this thing happen, and folks down there saying, see, this is all the evidence you need that the NFL has it in for us and it's a con job that they're putting. Now, I don't believe the refs I don't, well, I don't I don't believe the refs did it intentionally or through the game. I think they muffed the call. But if you're in New Orleans, good luck convincing the people down there, because they're not buying it at all. As far as they're concerned, this league is rigged and they've got it in for New Orleans. Well, and they remember, wanted L.A. in the Super Bowl. That's the, that's the story. Well, and,
3: and a lot of people are saying that, right? I mean, I, I had some clips on CHH News yesterday about fans basically saying that, you know, that the money's in L.A. And it's a beautiful thing. Patriots are the biggest, one of the biggest brands in the sport. And, and, and Los Angeles market, where they're trying to really still stimulate the public, yep. you know, uh, other than New York, it's the next biggest market in the United States. So, so believe
0: it uh, if you want, and you can probably find a good argument or at least convince yourself that that's, uh, that's the story behind it. But the other one was this: the overtime, and this is where you and I on Twitter on Sunday night were arguing a bit, and I said, i got to have you on, I think you said you wanted to come on, and so, a fort- as I say, unfortunately, short on time, I argue that the overtime system in the NFL is stupid and i said this long before because every both teams should at least get their hands on the ball regardless of the circumstance your argument was if you don't like it stop them and get the ball back yourself is that roughly where we're at
3: and for me that's the basis of football first of all there's going to be a coin toss there's no other way to decide who gets the ball whatever that's the way we start off games in football and at the end of the day people have to remember that football is a game of three aspects offense, defense, and special teams. And I know everyone wanted to see Patrick Mahomes get an opportunity to try and match. First of all, the game can't go on forever. But at the end of the day, right, this isn't a situation like the CFL where you start from the 35 and you go and you play this sort of video game sort of way and you score and I score and whatever. This is the truest way. The NFL had it wrong when it was just you could kick a field goal. They corrected that, which I think is the purest form of the game, is that me – offense defense and then you stop me at the end of the day that drive was like a 13 play drive scott with three third and ten situations it's not just all about patrick mahomes it's also about the, the, the the kansas city defense stopping brady getting the ball back that's the way the game is played for four quarters why would you change it in overtime to something some kind of like what the cfl has which to me is like it's it's it's, a, it's no different than three-on-three three in the shootout. It's very gadgety and very video game-like.
0: So if you had the same NFL overtime thing, so it's not the CFL start at the 35-yard line, it's a real game, mm-hmm. and Brady goes down and takes his team and they score a touchdown, and you say, okay, we're going to not do from the 35. New, New England is going to kick off, and they are going to kick off, and now Kansas City has to score a touchdown. And if they don't score a touchdown, the game is over, but if they do... Is anybody who's watching that game going to complain that now we got to keep playing? Uh, This is what I don't understand. What would be the harm? What's the problem with giving the other team an opportunity with the ball?
3: Every situation except for I guess baseball because it's it it, it is a you. I mean the, the basis of baseball is I'm up, you're up. Basketball you can't do this because the first person to score a basket. I mean that would be ridiculous for overtime. But for the most part, overtime in most sports is sudden death right so So why not allow
0: a field goal then that's sudden death because
3: because the complaint was when it was a field goal that's like okay you kick off the ball if i get a decent return all i have to do is move the ball 20 yards kick a field goal and the game was over and i thought the nfl did a good job in correcting it and correcting it and saying okay if we if that's a situation and you do kick a field goal you do get the ball back but again if you drive the ball 75 or 80 yards down the fall of the field, and I, I, I bring it up again, three, one, two, three, third and ten situations in that defense, which fired their defensive coordinator today, yes. did not come through in the clutch. And, that, and again, it's not all about just the offense. It's about offense, defense, special teams. It's not all about Patrick Mahomes. And yeah, as a fan... Of course, who wouldn't have wanted to see that situation? But I also understand that that's the way football is played, and this is, to me, one of the truest forms of an overtime that you can possibly get.
0: I would go back to, now, okay, so you, you, you mentioned this, it was a 70-yard drive with a third and 10s and everything else. I go back to the Tim Tebow overtime where he won on the first drive with, I can't remember who they are playing, were they They're Pittsburgh? Pittsburgh? And when Tim Tebow threw the cross that went to the long touchdown that scored, the Pittsburgh Defensive back or safety, whomever slipped and fell, leaving the the Denver player wide open. And so you say, well, yeah, but okay. So one mistake in in this case, yeah, you can point to Kansas City and say you should have stopped them. But there's also the possibility that one mistake due to certain happen in the first or second or third. I understand. (laughs) And so and so, my issue becomes: I always go back to the Mac Laval game in 2011 when it went overtime, score, overtime, score, overtime, score, and nobody had a problem. In fact, that's still cited by a lot of people as the most exciting game they've ever seen. And if that had ended the way that I, I think Max scored first, it would have been the first score in overtime, and boom, done. That game loses I, tons I, of would, its And I would be zip.
3: fine with it, Scott, because to me that form of an overtime is not conducive of the way his game. If, why would you change the way the game is played? For the, we've sat down for three hours or three and a half hours and watched the game play a different way. All right? We complain. We, we, with vitriol, we complain about soccer in, in overtime, going to a shootout. It is, that but is what a, if in that soccer? Is a, that is a gadgety way it is. And so is the shootout for hockey. So why, so why would you change the nature of the game by doing this? Th- I'm not saying it's not exciting, but why I think you want to avoid this sort of video game sort of,
0: it, for I fans, agree. Things. I agree with getting rid of the gadgets. I, we got to go, but I would say this: you brought up the shootout. The way the NFL overtime is right now is like having a soccer or hockey shootout, where if the first team scores on their first shot, you say they win, and you say, well, "Yeah, but I never got a turn." And you said, "Yeah, hey, you had a goalie; he should have stopped it, and then you could have had a shot." That nobody would be okay with that. Nobody would be okay with that, even though the goalie is part of your team. You would no. say no. I have to be able to have a turn to shoot, or else it's not fair.
3: I'm I, I, gonna. I, we have to agree to disagree because to me, the, the the form of way the CFL does it and the way the NCAA does it is a is is is, is it, it's a. It, it it's not the integrity of the game it ruins the integrity of the game because it becomes something more about television and excitement and back and forth and you score i score that's not the way the game is played for the for the pretty much 3 hours of of what we watch it's about grinding out first downs it's about moving the football down the field the offense stopping the defense and and so, on, so and so on
0: we'll have to arm wrestle for it later <laughs> Bubba O'Neill from CHCH, you can hear him do his sports tonight, and there is another big weather mess coming. I'm sure he'll be talking about that today, too. And then it's going to be six degrees. There we go. See, all everything is going to be perfect, although everyone's basement is going to be flooded out because of all this oh now. But anyway, gosh. that's for another day. Bubba <laughs> O'Neill, thanks for doing this today. Always oh, a pleasure. Thanks for having me.
3: The Scott
1: Radley Show. weekday evenings from 6 to 8 on 900 CHML.